Well, calling and giving and sending, you notice that I'm sure behind me, uh, it's a common refrain. And when I say that, I'm referring to God being the one, of course, who called, gives, and sends. Uh, it's a repetitive pattern uh, established by the Lord very early on and repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. It actually begins in Genesis. We see uh, God calling Adam and Eve out of hiding, and he gave them a promise of gospel hope, um, and then he sent them out of the garden. We see it um, in, later on in Genesis, we see God calling Abraham, and he gave Abraham promises of a name and a land and a blessing, and then he sent him out of Ur to the promised uh, land to be a blessing for the nations. He called out um, uh, Moses, and he gave him a staff and a spokesperson, an Aaron, and then he sent him to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh. We see God calling Israel out of Egypt and giving them the law and then sending them again to the promised land and to be a blessing to the nations. He called Isaiah and he gave Isaiah clean lips and sent him to speak to his people during the Assyrian judgment. We see him calling Jeremiah and giving him his words and then sending him to his people during uh, all of the incursions of, of the Babylonians. And then we see him calling Ezekiel and giving Ezekiel the spirit and then sending him to Babylon to speak to his people through, uh, through the destruction of Jerusalem. Over and over again, those are just a few of God calling and, and giving and sending. We see this pattern here in Luke 9. We see Jesus, God incarnate, calling the disciples and giving them power and authority and a mission and a message as well as directions and then sending them out to the lost sheep of Israel. And interestingly, this was, this was a short-term trial run for what would happen later when he would give them the Spirit and then send them out to be his witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then, of course, we have all experienced this pattern ourselves. Those who are in Christ, we have been a part of this same pattern. We have been called out of a kingdom of darkness and, and drawn into the kingdom of light. We've been called to salvation. We've been called to walk in a manner worthy of that salvation. And we've been equipped and given new hearts and the Spirit who enables us not only to fulfill the call of obedience, but to fulfill the mission that He's given us as a church because we too have been sent. We've been sent to the nations to proclaim repentance and forgiveness, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to proclaim and to, to make disciples and baptize them and teach them about all that we've been commanded and given. And at first, that calling and giving and, and sending was going to be the outline, not just the title of it, but the outline of, of the message tonight. But for some reason, the outline, that outline kept making me a little uncomfortable in regard to who the actual focal point of the passage was and is. 
You see, because this passage is not about the disciples, and this passage isn't about us. This passage is about the Lord Jesus. And it's applicable to us. So the outline tonight, as you'll see on the back of your bulletin, we'll look at three things. We want to see the authority and power of Jesus. We want to see the message and mission, or let's flip that, the mission and message of Jesus. And then, the follow, and then lastly, we want to see the response to Jesus, right? The, pow, the authority and power of Jesus, the mission and message of Jesus, and the response to Jesus. And as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we uh, go any further. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? Uh, grant us the ability um, to ap- appraise and apprehend your truth. Awaken our attention and open our sorrows, convict us, challenge us, and then please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we see Jesus and hear his gospel tonight. As always, I'm weak and needy and unfit for this task to which you've called me, so I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something for you tonight. I pray that you would grant me the ability to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen and amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, um, as Jesus began to draw His ministry in Galilee to a close... Uh, He determined that it was time for those who had been with him and who had heard him and who had seen him um, cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead, it was time for them to move out of the instruction phase to the participation phase or the practice phase or practical hands-on ministry experience phase of their discipleship training. So having called them out, it was now time to send them out. But before he could send them out, he needed to equip them. And he needed to equip them because what he was calling them to do was not something that they could do in and of their own power or in and of their own authority. Actually, they had no power or authority in and of themselves. So if he was going to send them, he needed to equip them Because apart from him, there was nothing that they could do on their own. They did not, again, have the power. They didn't have the spiritual strength within themselves. They didn't have the authority or the right to exercise that spiritual strength. They needed power and authority outside of themselves. They needed that that only he could give them. And so we see in verse 1 that he gave them both power and authority. And the question we ask is, well, what kind of power and authority did he give them? And to answer that, we have to remind ourselves what we've seen throughout the first eight chapters of this gospel, because we've seen that power and that authority in action. We've seen a a power and authority that he himself possessed. It was a power that he exhibited in the casting out of demons, as well as healing the sick and raising the dead. And it was an authority that he possessed over over everything. He had complete and overarching authority over all things, both spiritual and physical. 
He had authority over life and over sin and over death. He had authority over the spiritual and physical realms, over creation and recreation, and he spoke with authority, and he acted with authority, and he was able to delegate with authority because he himself had been given all authority on heaven, or in heaven and on earth. So the power and authority he gave them was the power and authority over spiritual and physical realms. And he gave them both so they could act as his official representatives. So when they spoke, they would speak in his name. When they would cast out demons, they would cast out demons in his name. When they would heal the sick, they would heal the sick in his name. They would do nothing in and of their own power and authority because they had no power or authority. They, had the, they only had the ability and the right to do what they had been sent to do because they had been given what they needed to do it. And they had been given that power and authority by the one in whom or in whose name they were being sent. And that, of course, being in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that look like for us today? How, how is this applicable to us? And I believe it's very important for us to remember that the authority and the power of Jesus that was uniquely delegated to the apostles is presently demonstrated by the church, but I need to clarify what I mean. I say uniquely delegated to the apostles because they were the foundation upon which the church was built. And so they had been given that authority and that power unlike others that had come before them or that would come after them. They had been given and, and uniquely delegated with that power and authority for the establishment of the church. And that power and that authority would not be delegated in that same way again because there are no apostles today. At the same time, we as the church have been given power and authority. We have been given power and authority from the Lord that is demonstrated every day. First, it's demonstrated through the gospel. Paul calls the gospel the power unto salvation. He also says that the word of the cross is the power of God. So we have power in the gospel. Secondly, we've been given the Spirit, right? And the Spirit regenerates and changes hearts and grants faith. The Spirit makes the work of Christ effectual in the lives of those who turn to Him in faith. He, he applies the benefits of Christ's work to those who have been united to Him. And that Spirit dwells within us, resides within us, and gives us strength to remain steadfast as we continue to grow in godliness, and also gives us the strength in that which we need to proclaim the gospel that is the power unto salvation. And thirdly, we've been given authority, and we've been called out and sent as ambassadors to preach the gospel message. We don't go and minister in our own names, 
as we see fit, we go and minister in His name, as His representatives, under the authority of His Word, to a lost and dying world. And brothers and sisters, the signs and wonders that are performed today are not performed by us because they do not need to be performed by us and cannot be performed by us. They are performed by the Spirit. And I say that because those who are saved and are looking to Christ for their salvation are walking signs and wonders. Every Christian has been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Every believer has been convicted of their sin by the Spirit. We've been granted repentance and faith by the Spirit. We've been led to trust, and trust in and profess the Lord Jesus as our Savior by the Spirit. And each and every time, we'll go back in the Gospel a little bit, in the Gospel of Luke, and each and every time we love and forgive our enemy. Each and every time each and every time we refuse to judge, each and every time we obey the word, of the, God, uh, the word of God, and each and every time we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, each and every time we walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we do something that is impossible apart from the Spirit of the living God who is at work within us. And may I be so bold to say that those who believe the church needs a greater manifestation of ecstatic experiences and speaking in tongues and miraculous healing to substantiate the presence of the Spirit or to authenticate a person's salvation have simply become bored with salvation because they believe it to be an ordinary work of man. They discount and fail to recognize or even reject the truth that salvation is an extraordinary, miraculous work of God. And brothers and sisters, may we not lose our awe. May we not lose our wonder of salvation. And may we continue to demonstrate both the power and authority of God as we continue to pursue our growth and godliness by the Spirit and as we continue to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our second point, the mission and message of Jesus. Verse 2 says that He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. If you'll remember from our study of chapter 4, back in January and early February, we learned that his mission was twofold. Uh, first, he had a mission that included the ministry of proclamation, and his message that he came to proclaim was straightforward and clear. Right? He had come to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. He came to proclaim a kingdom that was spiritual and not physical. He came to proclaim a kingdom that man could not build. He came to proclaim a kingdom that would be inherited and not received. It came to be inherited and received, not earned or obtained. 
Right? A kingdom that could be inherited and received, not earned or obtained. He, he came to proclaim the good news that liberty and freedom and release and deliverance were all available to those who were in bondage to their sins and whose souls, hearts, and minds had been under the rule of the prince of the power of the air. He had come to offer forgiveness and redemption through the payment of their debt that was to be paid by someone else. He came proclaiming the coming of a kingdom that included riches and treasure beyond the value of money or possessions that could ever be experienced or were a part of an earthly kingdom. His offer was heavenly treasure that moth and rust could not destroy. His offer was salvation, and it involved an eternal inheritance. His offer was every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and again, That wasn't to be earned or purchased. It was fully and freely received as a gift. And of course, he came to proclaim that he, in fact, was the one that would secure and deliver all of those things. He would deliver them through his work as the Savior and Lord and Redeemer and King. He would exercise his authority. And he would rule and reign over the hearts and lives of His people that He had redeemed. He would, in the words of Isaiah, not only establish the kingdom, but uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It was a kingdom that He was initiating and that He alone would consummate. And that He alone would rule over eternally. But His mission had a second part to it. His his mission was not only a ministry of proclamation, it was a ministry of presence, as we've seen over these last eight chapters. And, and that ministry of presence always pointed back to who he was and what he came to do. His ministry of presence was a means by which others would see that authority and power that was present within him. In other words, his ministry of presence authenticated the, mi- min- uh, the message that he was proclaiming. He was concerned with the physical and the spiritual needs of those around him. And he had, we, we, we've seen he has this deep compassion that led him to act and to exhibit a, a deep-seated mercy in meeting the needs of others. And each and every physical need he met pointed to a deeper spiritual need and a deeper spiritual reality, again, that he alone could meet. And this was the mission and the message that he had proclaimed to his disciples and and the apostles, and it was a mission and message that he had equipped them with, and it was a mission and message that he would send them out and was sending them out to fulfill. And notice in verse 3, he gives them some specific instructions. He says, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and don't have two tunics. It was of utmost importance that they travel lightly as they went, at least this time. They were to travel lightly this time because he didn't want them to be distracted. He, he wanted them to go with an urgency. 
And he wanted them to model what it was he was proclaiming, what they would be proclaiming. And he wanted them to experience and learn on this short-term mission trip, right, this, this trial run, what would become very, very important in the long term when they were sent on the long-term trip. He wanted them to know that he would take care of each and every one of their needs, no matter what their circumstances might be. And we read in Luke 22, I encourage you to turn there this, uh, this week at some point and see that when Jesus asks them to recall this exact moment in time, they say that he met their every need. He accomplished what he needed to accomplish for the long term. One pastor put it this way, the memory of how God had provided for them, how He nurtured their faith, would sustain them in the coming days when they would be persecuted to the ends of the earth. The mantle of leadership was about to be passed on to them. He was training them in a limited faith mission to prepare them for the day when He would be taken from them, and with the help of the Spirit, they would be faithful witnesses to the world. And brothers and sisters, the, that mission and message that he had given the, the apostles is the same mission and message that we've been entrusted with, that he's entrusted to us. I, I almost, I, I tried in every way that I could to say, because you've heard me say it so many times over the last two and a half years, because many believe it to be simplistic. Something is, it's too simplistic, but if the priority of Jesus was the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, and if the priority of the early church, the apostles in the early church, was the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom, it should be the priority for us today. We're no better, of course, than the Lord Jesus. We're no better than the early church. The proclamation of the good news should be our priority and we know that because the reading and teaching and preaching of God's Word that, that is, is what the Lord has ordained and blessed. You could all probably quote this with me, but question 89 of the Shorter Catechism sums it up. The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and building them up, building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. And at the same time, we cannot neglect our own ministry of presence. We've been called to a ministry of presence. We've been called to a mission that involves both word and deed. We have a responsibility to take advantages of the opportunities that the Lord gives us to care for the poor and, and feed the hungry and exercise hospitality to the, hope, uh, the, the homeless and to, to reach out to the prisoner and to provide assistance to the disadvantaged. We too must develop that deep-seated compassion for others and, the and, and begin to, that, that exercise of mercy, right? The actions behind the words. Yes, our first priority is the proclamation of the Word of God. We are a simple means 
of grace ministry. The responsibility of ministering through word, sacrament, and prayer, but we cannot neglect our ministry to the body as well. And the key will be as it was for them, removing, remo- removing the distractions, particularly the cultural ones and, and otherwise, and going with a sense of urgency and a sense of dependency, modeling that which we proclaim, and not allowing our priorities to get out of order. Last fall, I read this quote to you from Harry Reader, pastor at Briarwood Presbyterian. I read it to you last fall. I had read it in an article he had written, and I had the opportunity of hearing him last week say these very things. But he says, whatever becomes the functional mission of our ministry or church will soon determine its message. If our mission is self-esteem, our message will become a therapeutic gospel. If our message is success in life, our message will be a prosperity gospel. If our mission is social justice, our message will be a social gospel. He goes on to say, we cannot let even the desired outcomes of the mission and message of the church become the mission and message of the church. They are the consequences The church's mission and message is narrow and focused and results in Christians with lives that have a mission that is broad and comprehensive as we disciple them to observe all that He commanded. So if we will stay, He says, if we will stay on mission and message, the church will produce disciples who are salt and light, who can live the great commandment and love mercy do justice, and walk humbly with God. But our priorities must be in the correct order. And that brings us to our last point, the response to Jesus. Look at verse 4 again. Jesus says, And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. In these instructions, we see three responses to the Lord Jesus that are important for us. First, we see a response of the disciples in verse 6. Having been called and having been gifted and having been sent, they responded and went. They had heard the call and responded with submission and obedience. And they went just as they had been sent to do. Right? Just, they, they, they went because they had been sent to go. They departed immediately. They trusted in the Lord and said uh, what He had said and what He had told them and what He had given them. They, they trusted in all those things and they went and preached the gospel and healed others everywhere. Right? Indiscriminately sowing. A second response we see is in verse 4. It's the response of acceptance. Some would hear the good news, and as they would hear the good news and, and receive it, 
uh, with faith, they would invite the apostles in to stay with them. The hospitality offered the messengers was fruit of the acceptance of the message. And that, of course, then is, right, the opposite is, is true as well here in the, the third response in verse 5. It's, it's the opposite of rejection. And while others would open their homes, others would keep their doors closed, or if they opened their doors, they would slam it in their faces. And just as the acceptance of the messenger reflected fruit of, of an acceptance of the message, the rejection of the messenger reflected the fruit of the rejection of the message. But Jesus takes it a, a step further and says the rejection of the messenger was actually a rejection of him. And if people rejected him, they were to, to wipe the dust off their feet as they left, symbolizing Christ's own rejection of those who had rejected him. Harsh words. Harsh words from the Lord. And then in verses 7 to 9, Luke gives an example of a response. Um, he says, Herod, the, Luke says, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod's scratching his head. He said, I beheaded John. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Right? The apostles had done their part. The apostles had gone. They had been preaching. They had been healing. They had proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. They had given a testimony of the gospel for all to hear. And Philip Ryken puts it this way, he said, the apostles had done their work well, not advancing themselves, but preaching Jesus Christ and performing miracles in His name. And when they moved on to the next place, the people they left behind were all talking about Jesus. Even Herod, again, shaking his head, who is this guy? Right? He's asking the question, and he's asking, by the way, the right question, who is this? This is the question that Luke has been answering from the very beginning. So the message has gone forth and it's having its way and Herod's asking, who is this man? But he never comes to the right conclusion. Now I want us to consider two final takeaways. The first is this, our goal should be, again, in the words of Philip Ryken, to touch people's lives in such a way that leaves them deeply impressed. But he goes on, not with us, but with our Savior. I was encouraged last week when one of our elders mentioned that he had been talking to many of the new families who've recently been joining us for worship. And he said, across the board, as I talk to these families and I ask them, why are you coming to Christ Church and why are you, what is your explanation to your friends and family for why you've been attending Christ Church? And he says, to a family, they've said, because we hear the gospel every week. 
making much of Jesus. As I've said in private and probably even in public, you know, what we attract people with, we have to keep them with. And what we attract people with, we attract them to. May we always attract, may, may, may the attraction always be the Lord Jesus and His gospel. Always. And finally, our interaction with people should ultimately lead to a decision. It should ultimately lead to a decision, and the decision is very clear. Again, we've seen this time and time again throughout the gospel to this point, but there are only two choices. The choices are life and death. The choices are acceptance of Christ and rejection of Christ, and there's no in-between. And so we, we ask that question. We've heard the question asked, who is this Jesus? And again, Herod had not come to the same conclusion, right? We look back and he says, well, you know, it, it can't be John, and, but some have said Elijah and others have said it's the prophets, right? But he doesn't come to the same conclusion that Peter's going to come to in just a few verses before the end of the chapter. Peter gets it right. Who is this who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And the answer is, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, who lived and died and rose again for sinners like us. That is the gospel. And may the Lord Jesus be the one to whom we look. May He be the one that we place our trust and hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.